agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I'm as uh, as lost as a Secret Service uh, text message. Mike. Oh, very uh, good. So I'm still still uh, <laughs> still recovering from the week here, but uh, I'm here for you. There you go. I, I like that. You know, before we get started, I wanted to mention something to you and to listeners. Uh, listeners, you might have heard the last few weeks, uh, the last few times he's been on, Trey has been claiming multiple times now uh, that he and Ken are the number one hosting team on the politics, guys. And and I got to say, Jay, I, I've, got a, I've got a theory about this I wanted to run by you. Uh, so my theory is that Trey was so deeply wounded by my claim a few weeks back that he is a living constitution guy, which I stand behind, and, and he's just so hurt by that that he's just lashing out, essentially. And, and I just want to say, Trey, I know you're listening. I get it. I feel your pain. It's difficult to come to terms with your living constitutionalism, but, you know, just try to, you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. That's all. I just, I just wanted to say that. Put that out there, you know. So anyway, but uh, before we do really get going, um, I just wanted to mention quickly that from today on, we are changing things up just a little bit, or I guess really more going back to our old format of having a full episode for everyone and then a midweek show exclusively for our supporters or, you know, anyone who would be a supporter, but isn't financially able to be that right now. And the reason why we're not doing just a change for change's sake thing. We've actually stayed with this format for a while now, nearly eight months, I believe. And listeners in that time, you've made it clear that, well, you like the old format better. And while that's not true of everyone, uh, and some people might be disappointed, the vast majority of folks said, hey, bring back that old format, which is what we're going to do. The one tweak we're going to be making, and we hope you'll appreciate it, is that in our midweek supporter episodes, we're going to try to do something a little bit differently, kind of pull back and look at politics and policy in a way that um, I guess you could say that the demands of the news cycle make difficult at times, especially on a regular uh, this this show. And so we think that'll actually add something that you said would, would appreciate. For instance, on this week's midweek episode, Jay and I are going to be talking about our origin stories. Like it's not they're not just for superheroes, but actually political. <laughs> political pundit types, uh, our political influences and our kind of big picture views on human nature, government, democracy, capitalism, that kind of stuff. The sort of things we just, I think we, Jay, we kind of get into a little bit, we hint at, but we never really kind of deal with in sort of a very forthright sort of way. So I'm really looking forward to this, you know, uh, so, but anyway. That's all for the midweek show. On our regular show, we've got a bunch of stuff, all kinds of legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which may, might be a thing. We'll see. Ask Kristen Cinema. Uh, the uh, Creating Helpful Incentives Produce, uh, what is it, the CHIPS Act? I don't know the acronym, yes, but anyway. Yes. I, I, yeah, I would I would have voted against it just well, on that. There you go. Yeah. The, uh, the Respect for Marriage Act, uh, all kinds of acts, basically. We'll talk maybe about monkeypox and Donald Trump's I'll quote-unquote, policy speech. Uh, all that is coming up for you, and we will get to that in just one second. 
All right, Jay. One thing I didn't mention, uh, just a quick update. You know, the last time we were on the show, we talked about uh, Brittany Griner's detention in Russia, which seems like unlawful detention, kind of kangaroo court sort of thing. And one of the things we talked about, as we suggested, is that, well, maybe the State Department sort of dropped the ball on their do not travel warning. Not that they didn't get it out in plenty of time, but maybe that it wasn't uh, that the communication was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it turns out that it, in in her trial this week, uh, Griner's actually said that no, she actually did get the message and understood that this was a do not travel uh, advisory, but that she decided to go to Russia anyway because she didn't want to disappoint her team in the playoffs. And, and I felt that was important to, to bring up. Now, I, I could expect some people might say, well, my God, well, that's bad on her. I mean, what kind of a reason is that? But I got to say, my my initial reaction was, no, I totally get that. If you've ever been part of kind of a close, tight-knit sort of group that trying to, you know, I mean, that that's a that can be a real uh, a real factor, and you know, I, I know there are people who uh, who oh, it's just sports ball or whatever that kind, you know that. that but but no, I mean, I, I could totally understand that, and I, while I I don't know, I would have made the same decision. I you know, I, it does that doesn't seem well, like well, even if you would have made the same decision, would would you also have not made the decision of uh, look, I really should be extra careful about anything that I'm packing, yeah, and uh, not packing and all that. Yeah, um, you know, and I can, and, and, I'll, and I'll say there, there's embedded in that the assumption that she actually was carrying something that she wasn't supposed to. Right. Uh, again, she's she's admitted to that, but she's admitted to that in a Russian Russian court. So I, I don't I don't necessarily, you know. Yeah, we I, don't we don't really know I, what I'm, the facts are. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm completely uh, uh, believe that the Russians could could make stuff up and plan stuff and and sort of you know you're told that yeah you know, you're better better confess so i'm not saying that she actually did that uh but i'm just saying regardless that's one of those things that um there was a piece i read uh and i forget where um uh but about uh someone who had worked in russia in the early 90s in the uh, and this was you know the, the glass nose perestroika sort of you know kinder gentler soviet union um, or Shelton's Russia, yeah, the the, the fun yeah, alcoholic but, sort of fumbling, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but still, just about about how um, in in doing this, and this person did theater uh, uh, stuff in, in Russia. You know, sort of the, the fear of God was was put in him about um, making sure that you did not do anything uh, that would would any way violate Russian law. And and again, I'm not I'm not saying that she necessarily did that. I I just we just don't know. Um, but uh, to me, that's that's also it's just something to consider. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a fair point. And of course, we've gotten more information this week about, you know, Secretary of State Blinken talking to his uh, Russian counterpart, uh, uh, Sergei Lavrov. And it seems like that certainly that deal that a lot of people talked about, the arms, the merchant of death for the two U.S. folks uh, might actually go forward, though. I don't think anyone really expects that to happen before uh, Griner is found guilty, which he will be. And I assume given the maximum sentence, which, again, I assume she will be given Russian, um, I guess we'll call it justice for lack of a better word. Right. So but anyway, um, I just wanted to mention that before we got on to our uh, the, the first thing we wanted to, well, the main first thing we wanted to talk about this week. Uh, you know, I, I think everyone knows by now that the most important person or I guess you could say the biggest bottleneck, depending on how you look at it, to, to Democratic legislation in the Senate for the last, uh, well, year and a half, whatever, the Biden's presidency has been 
Joe Manchin. Uh, you might call him a Republicrat almost. <laughs> I don't know. But but this week, big deal, right? Because Manchin announced that he'd reached agreement with his Democratic Senate colleagues on major climate legislation. This would be the biggest climate legislation ever passed by Congress. And this was just a few weeks after he said, no, nah, it's just not going to happen. And while this certainly falls way, way, way short of the Biden administration's initial push for $1.8 trillion in that Build Back Better plan, it's certainly not small change. I mean, according to the CBO, the bill would spend a total of $433 billion with $369 billion of that going toward energy security and climate change, and then $64 billion for an Affordable Care Act extension. Now, the CBO summary of the bill indicates that it will lower energy costs, increase clean energy production, and reduce carbon emissions by around 40% by 2030, as well as resulting in lower Affordable Care Act premiums for a whole bunch of Americans. Um, and the bill is called, of course, the Inflation Reduction and, and higher Act. taxes for well, other Americans. We will get to that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, called, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which on the surface sounds like a weird name, I think, for something that spends nearly half a trillion dollars, right? But, but CBO also estimates that it will actually raise $739 billion over that decade time for a net deficit reduction over 10 years of over $300 billion. Now, where does that come from? Well, a number of places. Jay, this is where we're getting into that part. The three largest components, a 15% corporate minimum tax, which would raise an estimated $313 billion, allowing Medicare to negotiate prices for certain drugs, which will bring in around $288 billion, increased and increased IRS enforcement. You know how much I love this one, right? Those yeah. are, those are <laughs> two of two of the three things you have been arguing for for forever. You know, it's it's like it's like someone's listening. But this, is, this should be a big a big weekend. For I, you. I really, yeah, I was pretty thrilled. And that that IRS enforcement is expected to bring in an increased uh, additional 124 billion. Again, that's over the decade. And finally, there's a provision that would close what's called the carried interest tax loophole, which would basically require money managers to pay the same tax rate. Uh, as non-money managers do, and currently that, that that's capped at 23.8%, whereas the top marginal tax rate for individuals is 37%. And this is something that Joe Manchin has really been pushing on for a while, though it runs into some potential opposition from Kristen Sinema, who is... Uh, been long against it, and not coincidentally, maybe her main source of campaign funding is actually the securities and investment industry, though I'm sure that's you know, just a coincidence. Anyway, um, but uh, cinema has not yet uh, weighed in on this, but Manchin certainly has. What he had to say was the bottom line was inflation scared the bejesus out of me at 9.1%. I said, I'm going to go back and rescrub that bill. So Monday I said, Chuck, I'm not walking away, never have. My people are still working. If you want to see if we can basically scrub everything and make sure it's not inflationary. So that's at least the ostensible reason Manchin gave, was they scrubbed out the inflationary stuff, but and they allowed him to name it, I guess. But it's more than just that. Uh, you know, Joe Manchin, of course, is the senator who has received more fossil fuel campaign funding than any of his colleagues from either party. And as you might expect, well, he got a few things for his main supporters there. For instance, requiring more federal auctions of public lands and waters for oil drilling, uh, expansion of tax credits for carbon capture, things that could help coal and gas power plants keep operating, and the promise from 
Democratic leadership for a vote on separate legislation that would speed up the process of issuing permits for energy infrastructure. And uh, there's also uh, a federal trust fund to support coal miners with black lung disease and new incentives for companies to build wind and solar farms in areas, specifically in areas where coal mines or coal plants have recently closed. So, Jay, uh, you know, there were a lot of folks who thought that this deal would never happen. Even, like I said, a couple weeks ago, it seemed like Joe Manchin was one of them. Um, we're still not sure it's going to happen, but uh, it's it's looking much more like it might. What do you think about it, just in general? Well, I was uh, as surprised as, as anyone. Um, and I'll tell you, Mike, I was actually on a, a phone call with um, – uh, someone who is a, a Washington lobbyist uh, and his job is to watch these things. And, and uh, his message as of, you know, a week or so ago was that uh, build back better is absolutely dead, dead, dead. Um, Three dead. And, and I guess in one, in one sense it was, but, but, you know, we have this, yeah. um, you know, build back pretty good or yeah. something hey, like half that. Half a trillion dollars almost. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, so no, I was I was surprised, and I think even all the professional observers, right, of this were surprised. Um, I, I'm also thinking a lot of uh, the the voters of West Virginia are going to be surprised, um, and and I think Joe Manchin will be surprised by the reaction to it. Uh, I I, you know, if, if we're talking policy grounds, I, I think this is still sort of a uh, bad idea on on two fronts. If we're in uh, a, a you have 9.1% uh, inflation. And again, the answer is we're going to spend some more money. Um, well, well, let me, that but, seems uh, to be a terrible that, idea. But on that part, I mean, the spending actually comes, well, over the course of a decade, certainly. So I think sure. that argument, but and, and the tax increases would come much more quickly. As we talked about two weeks ago, last time we were on the show, tax increases are actually anti-inflationary. Uh, yes, and, they are. No, I'd, I'd, agree, I'd, I'd agree with you on that. Um, which brings me to the second point, right, okay. is, you know, we are, we are um, depending on what definitions you use, uh, in a recession or on the precipice of a recession. And uh, it, it's one of those, uh, again, iron laws or, or just um, maybe just common sense sort of things that you don't increase taxes uh, during a recession. Um so you, you've got sort of the double whammy, right, of, of spending more money. Well, wait a second. Hold on. Uh, hold you on. can <laughs> say that you spend the money you know, later, but. So far, let, let me stop you here. So I, I guess it seems to me that you're creating an argument that basically suggests that there's really no time to raise taxes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Be, okay. Yeah. I just wanted to be clear <laughs> that. I yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I thought I've always been clear on that. Right? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's, I think that is, I think that is completely wrong, obviously. I mean, certainly I, I think Manchin is right on, uh, there are two main you, components. You don't raise taxes, you, you in, increase growth, right? You grow the pie. That would be my, my response. Right. And you see, so, I mean, obviously the, well, not obviously, but the sort of logic of that then taken to an extreme would see that the ideal tax rate is zero. Because there or you go. You're really it. just see. I mean, no, I mean, my, my, our country existed with a zero tax rate for most of its history. Well, a zero federal tax rate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and that that I but but of course that's, that's, what, a, that's what we're talking about. But yeah. that's of course a ridiculous argument because the country is a very different entity than it was in the uh, right, and and we depended on things like tariffs and so forth, which which also are are 
may have been workable back then, but but would not be in a new global economy. Um, so so, but what I'm what I'm saying is, uh, yeah, I mean that there's there's no reason that taxes always ought to increase. Well, they don't always increase. So, in fact, they they decrease. They've decreased significantly. Uh, if you look at individual tax rates, for instance, I mean, there was a time not not in our lifetimes, but you know, uh, 60, 60, 70 years ago, where top marginal tax rates were right. in the 80, 90 percent, and there was strong economic growth. And you know, starting in the the Reagan era, basically, we saw those numbers go down. So it's not that tax rates always increase. In fact, we've seen them go down considerably. One of the big uh, so-called legislative achievements of the Trump administration was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which actually dropped tax rates considerably, both corporate and individual taxes. So it's not like that's that's something that happens. But, um, but, but you know, I, I think certainly, like I said, Manchin has been a proponent of, uh, I, I would call it tax fairness, saying that, hey, you shouldn't have a lower tax rate on on your income just because you're a money manager, and I think that's a strong yeah. argument. I, I, and so, well, I, 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 on the money manager piece of it, right? On those that piece where we're just kind of making adjustments, right? It's mm-hmm. not an across the board increase. It's not um, right. Uh, you know, those those sort of you know, let's call it loophole closing. Um, I I'm I mean I'm I'm okay with that, right? I mean, it's not. Uh, um, I don't think that's the, the terrible policy piece of it. So, but you're not you're not a fan of the corporate minimum tax. No, no, not at all. So basically, I mean, that's that's the that's the bigger problem. And that that's um, sort of I, I, my my fear is it undoes what was really the best part of the Trump tax uh, decreases uh, or tax cuts. Um, you know, which which encouraged companies to. Uh, Either stay here uh, or or come back from someplace where they had uh, gone offshore to avoid um, you, those corporate you, taxes. You, you don't think? I mean, what do you think about the argument that I certainly I believe in that, and I think it's Warren Buffett and some others suggested is that you know uh, the idea that there these huge corporations and incredibly profitable pay uh, oftentimes almost next to nothing in terms of percentage, at least in terms of taxes, and individuals pay far more. The idea that I would pay more in taxes than, say, Apple or, or something, that, that seems fundamentally unfair. A- and I think that's well, a strong you, Well, let's, let's, let's be clear. I mean, in, percentage, in terms of percentage. Yeah, that's um, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, you, you don't pay more than Apple in terms of gross. Um, well, I don't know. Apple has okay. <laughs> some pretty good the, tax the pod, attorneys. The podcasting sure. game here and all yeah. that. But um, yes and no, but but keep in mind part of the part of those those taxes that we say are paid by apple are still paid by apple shareholders um like you and me right um and you could say well i'm not an apple shareholder well no you probably are uh, sure you know, in, if you invest in an index fund kind of thing yeah exactly yeah uh somewhere somewhere uh in your 401k or index fund or whatever funds you're in or, or retirement plan there's there's you know there has to be uh, apple stock um so part of that, you know, those that that tax is, is paid when shares are sold and there's capital gains attached and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I think sometimes when we do this, this accounting of saying, well, uh, the company doesn't pay any taxes. Um, well, that's not entirely true. Uh, the shareholders of the company do. Um, and uh, in, in many cases, that's, you know, the big complaint is that there's double taxation, right? The company's taxed once on its its profits and its shareholders are taxed as well um so 
on either dividends or, or capital gains when they sell stock. So I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just talking about the, and I, and I, that was probably a useless digression, but I'm just talking no. about how we measure these things. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. So I, I think it, it's what I'm saying is important that these companies do pay a lot of taxes. The other piece of this in terms of tax policy is the federal government has determined, and they're exactly right, that most people, most average, you know, going to work every day, uh, folks like you and me, um, aren't overly uh, incentivized by by uh, t- changes to the tax code. Um, now, you can maybe say things like, you know, there was there was the um, uh, in the, the pre-Trump tax code, uh, the local uh, state and local um uh, investment uh, uh, write-off. There was the uh, mortgage write-off, and those those have been capped. And you can say, well, look, those those were encouragements for home ownership and for people. To, so, yeah, there's the child's tax credit, uh, that sort of thing. But it's not the same as uh, corporate taxes, where companies hire professionals to really figure out uh, the best way to to. Act right, according according to to, uh, to get the most out of those tax incentives. What I'm saying is there's there's much more much less elasticity um, in in terms of federal tax policy and its impact on companies than there are than there is on individuals. Yeah, um, but you know, and I think the argument certainly about well, what happens if our taxes are are, are higher and companies can go other places? But you know, that fifteen percent number didn't come out of nowhere. It's part of uh, there was uh, uh, OECD, uh, I believe it was an agreement back in I want to say twenty twenty one about actually trying yeah. to work for a fifteen percent global minimum yeah. tax, yeah. and that kind of to set that. To kind of set that so that way we don't have that that issue to that extent, right? And and I think you know that's uh, again I I understand your argument that well we just government just needs to do a whole lot less, right? And so therefore we can just lower taxes, and that's we'll we'll get to that in the bonus show talking about kind of fundamental differences of beliefs there. But but you know, the the reason that we're doing this in part uh, is is not just well before we get into the spending measures, the other things I wanted that we should get into on the revenue side. What do you think about the IRS enforcement thing? You know how I feel about it. Listeners know how I feel. I about know it. you love that. I'm you over the freaking moon oh, for everybody about that. Um, you know? Well, at least for rich look, people. I, yeah. <laughs> Tax um, I, I think uh, I, you know, should should uh, people not be cheating on their taxes? Absolutely. Uh, should there be an enforcement mechanism? Absolutely. Should it be a reliable enforcement mechanism? Sure. Um, that said, uh, two things. I, I think the IRS, like um, most government entities, are prone to abuse their power, and. Uh, I think there's a problem where uh, the IRS can uh, do an audit and uh, or or seek a, a uh, back taxes from someone and who may have a legitimate uh, defense, uh, but for them to have to fight that fight uh, could be very time consuming and very very expensive uh, against an IRS that has unlimited and even now more than unlimited resources. Well, it's not um, unlimited. Let's let's that, let's that, watch that, the hyperbole there. Yeah, let, let's watch the hyperbole. Well, it's not let's unlimited. put it this way: in in terms of of your average taxpayer, even if you want to say you have a wealthy taxpayer, the IRS is going to be able to outlawyer you. Uh yeah, because the average wealth, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I like, let's let's sure. say yeah, I mean, yeah. if you're, no, you're right. you know even the multi like if you're if you're if you're Elon Musk no yeah no um, that's fair that, uh, I I agree with if you you're, if you're yeah. run of the mill yeah 
But you know that that's the problem. Guy, that's right? the problem with law enforcement in general. The state yeah. almost for almost everyone is going to be able to bring to bear resources that most individuals can't, which is why it's important yeah. that there are safeguards built in, whether it's IRS audits or over policing in minority communities. No, I agree. That's exactly the same. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm 100% with you. Okay. So, I mean, if if you can have those safeguards, but I'm not sure what those safeguards are. No, and that's right? a fair point. Yeah, I, I would agree and, with and that. And the IRS comes and hey, we owe you, it uh, looks like you owe us, uh, you know, in tax and penalties, you know, you owe us a million bucks. Uh, well, um, you know, or we'll let you settle it for, for $250. Um, you right. know, you can spend more than that you know, in, in court and, and, and look, these are, you and I were talking before the show, these are sort of the, the metrics that I, I do every day, right? You, sure. you, you talk to your client and say, look, you want to fight this thing? Here's how much it's going to cost you, or you can settle it, you know, you, you, you can fight this and have an uncertain result. And it'll take a lot of time. So I, I guess what, what, I, this. Yeah. what I'm wondering that's, is that that's, that's, I'm just saying that's a concern. I'm not saying this is reason why it shouldn't be funded. I'm just saying, we should always be sensitive uh, when we want to increase the power or scope or reach of a government entity. Sure. Ab- absolutely. You're not, you're not saying, I just wanted to be clear, you're not suggesting that the IRS is enforcement division is fundamentally corrupt uh, no. any more than I would suggest that the police are fundamentally corrupt, just that when you give greater power and resources, it, it, leads to a greater possibility of abuse. That's all. Yeah. yeah and and there, there's yeah. always an incentive right, sure. for any prosecutor, for any IRS agent that, you know, sure. Well, look, you know, you want to be the guy who, who busts the, you know, yeah. busts the big case. Yeah. Well, so well, there's, that's what I'm saying. What about the Medicare uh, aspect of it? That's been for, for a lot of folks getting, allowing, and some actually a bipartisan in some instances, having, allowing Medicare to negotiate prices has been a big deal for them. Now, this doesn't cover all drugs. It's a subset. But, uh, you know, this is something that a lot of folks, myself included, have been pushing for for a long time, and we're glad to see it. What do you think? So I, I, I would <laughs> say, my God, it's even worse. Um, it, it strikes me as um, it, it, uh, it, it's sort of like um, Johnny Fontaine uh, negotiating with uh, Vito Corleone um, in terms of the, the way this, this legislation works is you can sort of take the government price that they negotiate uh, or uh, the government can subject you to significant taxes. Um, and to me, that's not free and fair negotiation. That's not saying, hey, government, we're going to give you a lower price because you're buying in volume. Um, it's it's a matter of the government essentially will have the power to command. No, I, don't, I, I believe and, I don't I, I don't I think that's correct. That. I, I don't think that's correct at all. I don't think government's allowed to set the price. There are stipulations in there. Now, I, I don't have the legislation in front of me, and so I won't comment on that specifically. But I believe you're wrong on the facts there, actually. Okay, and so that's well, one of those can, things that I will make a note. We we, we will, will both make check, a note to check that check yep. and, and and read through. But um, no, my understanding is that uh, if if you do not agree to the government uh, price, you can get hit with some pretty significant taxes, penalties, and so forth. So that's that's my issue with that. Um, what about uh, on and, the and okay? And we and we we will check into that. If it's a freely negotiated trade, I'm yeah sure. Yeah, but so then you are not in principle 
uh, against Medicare using its purchasing power to negotiate a better price on sort of a take it or leave it sort of thing. You just don't want government to be able to set prices. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will, we will get back and next time we, next time we talk, we'll give listeners an update on, on that. And I made a note, but. And because, I mean, and Mike, just because, I mean, when government sets prices. Sure. Um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying what, yeah, what I, results. I, yeah. I know. No, I know you know this. Um, and I'm sure most of our listeners know this, but, but the problem with, with any kind of price caps uh, is, is what it does is it creates scarcity. It certainly can. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's the issue is, is uh, you know, people who make these products say, look, we're just we're just not making money doing this anymore. Uh, we'll just stop making drug X, Y or Z. Well, that that again, that assumes that, I mean, that can happen, but also it can happen that government can and it has happened where government sets prices that are low enough to make companies grumpy about it, but not so low that they still can't make a profit. So it depends on how the price setting sort of regime is set up, basically. It can be like on a cost plus sort of basis, or it can just be on we are kind of dictating this price. And so I would agree with you. In theory, that can happen, but that only happens with really stupid governments. And, and I don't know that that would be the case. Thank goodness we don't have one of those. Well, yeah. anyway, so let's talk about, though, the the other side of it, right? The side that a lot of folks on, on the left, including myself, are really happy about that this is, in fact, the largest I would call You're it. not happy enough about the tax increases. In well, Medicaid. I mean, I'm happy about I'm happy about the fact that this is going to do more for climate than we've ever done in uh, any one okay. legislative. Uh, you know, all these tax incentives for uh, investing uh, both on the individual and on the business side, you know, hundreds of billions in this. And I think this is a huge deal, as do, you know, most folks in the environmental movement. We would have liked to have seen more. Sure. But given what we have to work with, you know, I think. I think I think this is I think this is really, really good. I I think using the tax code to incentivize certain behaviors, we've done that forever. And if we can use the tax code to incentivize both individuals to buy more energy efficient things and, and the way these provisions have been designed to make it so that it specifically or particularly helps out lower income uh, folks. So it's not like you can buy a top of the line Tesla and get these big tax credits. They've been kind of uh, zeroed out after a certain point, and, and also uh, businesses to give businesses incentives to do things that uh, will both help the environment and help their bottom line. I think that's a that's a great idea and long overdue. Yeah. Well, one, I, I I agree with you that those incentives work for businesses. Um, like I just said, uh, that's that's something they they yeah. look, look to. Um, if you're if you're asking where I, I would be critical is I I am always of the position that the market does a better job of picking winners and losers than the government does, <laughs> um, right? And this is you know oh, and, there's, and there's there's also Naive there's Jay. also there's also uh, let's let's think about. No, I, I'm laughing because you have this right. idea in well, your you head apparently of that, a free so. of a free market. We have a, we have a situation here where for decades the oil and gas, the fossil fuel industry has been subsidized out the wazoo. I oh mean, no 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 no! And look, I'm and I've I've been on record, uh, you know, to the extent that you know you're on record. Sure, yeah. on record or, <laughs> it's not yeah. like we have votes and you know. Sure, yeah, I, yeah. No, I've said time and again, I I don't like. Um, 
you know, this, these kind of government interventions, government subsidies, because they distort markets. Um, so if you want to say, look, we're going to cut back on subsidies that we've given, um, I think that's that's one thing. Um, it's something else to say we're going to give more subsidies to somebody else. Yeah, and, and um, but the logic that we're going to talk yeah. about later is the, the Chips Act, and I'm, I'm sort of in the same camp there. Um, because the logic the, of it here, Jay, I, I would argue the political logic, and, and I would agree with you that the fact that somewhere around eighty uh, percent of all energy subsidies go to the fossil fuel industry, which controls somewhere around 80 percent of all energy production, that's like profoundly anti-competitive. And the simple thing to do and from a market perspective, the more logical thing to do would just be to pull back those incentives as opposed to giving other incentives to the competing uh, renewable industry. But of course, politically, it's a lot easier to just kind of give some other industry incentives as opposed to take away incentives, because as you may have heard, the fossil fuel industry has quite a bit of clout in Congress. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, very much so. So, And, and look, there's also um, fossil fuel companies that are in, in some ways double dipping here, right? Sure. Yeah, because they're um, moving into renewables. You get the yeah. best of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those those bigger companies are the ones that have the uh, uh, you know Exxon can say, hey, yeah, we're going to do a whole uh, whole lot of renewable stuff, and uh, uh, you know we'll qualify for uh, whatever tax break subsidies, uh, so forth. Um, you know, so yeah, they're 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 getting it uh, taking it from both ends, um, and and the result is, uh, I fear more, you know, more more you know unnecessary government spending uh, and less. Uh, actual innovation, creation, all that sort of thing. And, and at the same time, also keeping smaller players out of the market. Yeah. And it, it's like, I mean, like, like I said, the, the logic of it, uh, of course, if, if the idea that you would provide massive subsidies to a clear sector leader, right, is it's that totally the only reason you're doing that is because this industry is using its political power to do what's called rent seeking, basically, to try to make the industry, the energy industry less competitive. And if you if you believe it all in free markets, this is uh, this is a really bad, a bad thing. And I think that's where you you and I probably agree almost entirely. That's where I am. Yeah. There you go. Um, so, do you think? No, I mean, go ahead. Other, other one, one last uh, piece that I think we should talk about that that I don't know that the bill addresses, um, and maybe the next thing we'll talk about maybe sort of addresses a little bit uh, is with all this this green energy, with all the solar uh, in particular. Uh, we are forced to look to China for a lot of the resources uh, for that. And I think that's that's troubling, um, just as troubling as being forced to look to the Mideast for oil. Yeah. Um, and and so. So I, my 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 concern is if, if we enter into a new energy policy that is over reliant uh, on solar and thus over-reliant on the Chinese, uh, where does that put us uh, national security-wise? And you can look at uh, what's going on in Europe where uh, for years, and you and I are also on the same page on this, on nuclear energy, right? Um, where where the Germans in particular, um, uh, you know, said, no, we don't want nuclear energy. No, we don't want um, our own uh, production. We'll just get a pipeline from Russia. Um, that's that leads to to problems uh again i'm all i'm all for globalism but i'm for a realistic globalism where you have to look at 
who you're dealing with and the fact that uh, if, if you are relying on um, one of these, these nations that is uh, inherently unreliable uh, for energy um, or the, the, the products to, that you need for energy, um, that's, that's not a good position to be in. You know, that actually, I think, is a nice segue into our next story. I think you may, maybe even, yes. you may be even thinking about that, right? So let, let's talk about that because that's, that's a little bit different. If, if, in fact, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 passes, and we still don't know, right? Cause, but uh, right. it will be on a party line, strictly party line vote in the, uh, on both chambers, I would expect. But this, uh, the CHIPS Act, uh, sorry, the Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act, um, this actually has significant bipartisan support. It passed in the Senate 64 to 33 with 17 of the 50 Republicans in the Senate voting to support the measure. And it's going to go to the House now. It's almost certain to pass. So this is actually, there's no question about this. This is going to be a law sometime soon. And what the CHIPS Act will do, well, it'll provide $200 billion for research into technologies like artificial intelligence, robotics, quantum computing, $52 billion in subsidies and tax credits for companies that make computer chips in the U.S., $10 billion for the Department of Commerce to uh, set up uh, 20 regional technology hubs across the country. So a, a real focus on high-tech competitiveness with not just China, but China, Taiwan, South Korea would be the, the, the three big ones there. Um, and so, Jay, I was wondering when I read this, would you have been uh, right there with Rob Portman, our Senator, retiring senator from Ohio, and Mitch McConnell in voting for this, or would you have joined the majority of the Republican Senate conference that actually opposed this legislation? So I'll tell you, I would have been for this in its original incarnation. Okay. Um, and and part of that, look, part of that is uh, the same reason Portman's for it. Uh, this is a huge boon for Ohio. Um, you know, for those who who aren't Ohioans. Uh, the state recently attracted uh, an Intel uh, uh, facility that's going to be built outside of Columbus. Uh, it's going to be huge. It is likely to become the largest employer in the state uh, in a short period of time. Um, so there were there was a huge. I keep saying huge. I'm like Trump. Um, Ohio, Ohio delegation, right? Who that was that was lobbying for this, um, and. Uh, uh, in in some respects, like I just said, I think it's important that we ensure that we have domestic supplies of things that uh, we need to make our economy run. And semiconductors are certainly one of those things. Um, and the initial uh, proposal, I don't have the numbers in front of me, was was much more modest. And it was sort of just a, well, sort of a help along subsidy. Uh, when it got to the Senate, it it, it, it then ballooned uh, into something that is much bigger. I want to say the the original was seventy five. Uh, what 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 is our total up to now, Mike? It's uh, like well, two hundred eighty billion. Two hundred and uh, uh, two hundred billion for Reese's. So it's like yeah, it's right around two hundred eighty billion. I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to say the the original was was somewhere in like the you know the, the two or three billion uh, range. Uh, and, and it, it seemed to me that, look, I'm, uh, while I'm, I'm not crazy about government subsidies, as we just discussed, uh, 
if you want to say, is it necessary sometimes to make sure we have domestic supply of things? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I guess the, the issue here is, is uh, at some point the, the quantity, uh, right. Just the size of the thing um, uh, I think is, is yeah, inappropriate. But, and there's just a lot of pork baking baked into it that, but, uh, you know, but, but so. I think, you know, as you point out, we don't want to rely on, especially on the highest tech, uh, technology, the highest tech chips, uh, or somewhere around figures I've seen 80, 90% or most advanced chips come from Taiwan. And of course, Taiwan's status yeah. is, is always a little questionable. But and while I understand your objections to what I think you could fairly call uh, at least sort of industrial policy light, I also think we need to consider that national security context. And, and when we look globally at who dominates uh, advanced chip production, it's not the U.S., right? It's yeah. Taiwan, it's South Korea, it's China. And they have been investing heavily. They have been giving hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies to their chip industries. And the problem with us just saying, well, we don't want to do industrial policy is that once you're once you're behind the eight ball on that and you're relying on chips for, you know, your your missiles and communications and all that, you don't control the production of, you put yourself in a very vulnerable position. And so while I understand yeah. that objection in general, I think in this specific instance, especially given the fact that you know, chips aren't uh, widgets, right? I mean, it takes a huge amount of money and time to kind of really invest in these things and have these things come to fruition. We're talking maybe, you know, a decade or more if we're talking, at, you know, at the basic science stuff, that if we fall behind on this, and we already have, it's not a question of if we fall behind, we already yeah. are behind on this. And so to me, the CHIPS Act, if, if anything else, is, is kind of like the first down payment on something we need to do much more of if we want to retain are if we want to not fall even further behind China, South Korea, and Taiwan in this area. Yeah, no, and I, I think I, I said I, I I agree with you. I think our our difference is uh, in uh, on the the size, right? Yeah, but, but I guess what I'm saying is that two billion would have been like it's like it, it's like nothing. I'm, I'm, trying like to, a, I'm trying to find what that what that number was, what the original number was. Yeah, because I mean China um, is putting hundreds of billions of dollars into yeah. this, and so we're even in the Chips Act is just sort of modest catch up sort of thing. And so to me, this is the the problem with the number, if anything, is it's not big enough. Although given where we are with the economy inflation, I get there are certain constraints on ah, this. So, oh, I'm, I, I, I hear the uh, the original number, I believe, was 75 billion. OK, and, you know, 75. And then it went to. Yeah. So I, I, I misspoke um, and it went to um, 280. So to me, that's that's a that's a big, big jump. If you want to say, okay, we need let's let's put in seventy five billion. Okay, that. And again, when you're talking in billions, and um, it's it's difficult to 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 quantify how much does seventy five billion get us closer to the Chinese? How much does that help? Um, but at some point, someone said, no, we don't need just uh, you know seventy five billion. We need um, you know essentially four times that. Um, to me, well, that's a, that's a big, that's a big jump, right? From, well, from I mean, the initial. But yeah, but I mean, China has a, a national, uh, uh, a policy, right? They have national policy and everything right, right. where they're, they're talking like, uh, they're, they're, you know, investment is like 150, $200 billion. So, I mean, uh, that's 
much more than than this already. And so that's why I think it's important to look at this, not just in terms of the U.S. context, but comparatively, because what we're trying to do here, of course, is to is to reestablish the global leadership in semiconductors that we lost quite a while ago, actually. Yeah. And, and to do that, no, you can't like go I said, I, I'm not I, I am not. I'm not opposed to this. I guess I'm just you. You see the uh, justification for 280 billion. Um, I'm I'm not there yet. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. And part to me, of- to me, it looks to me anytime anytime a bill uh, starts out in one incarnation, um, and then the the number gets multiplied by you know, like I said, you know, 300 400 percent. Um, that's that's sort of you know I, my suspicions uh, that there may be some some uh, you know pork in there um, uh, become become sort of high. So that's that's my my issue, right? Um, I'm I'm not opposed to it uh, entirely or on principle. Um, and the other thing that, that we should consider um, is that subsidies tend to be forever. And like we just talked about with the oil and gas subsidies. Now you can say, listen, uh, those subsidies were important and necessary uh, uh, and maybe even even important and necessary, necessary now. Um, but to to pair back subsidies um, is never hard. easy. Absolutely, no, happens. no question. I, uh, and and that's, that's sort of my, you know, if we're going to, starts doing these subsidies uh can't we just, just start at the lower number and uh well and see uh, i, I and understand that eventually we'll get get up to uh you know so no and i get the point of like we need to spend all the money now to counter china um, yeah i mean that that would be my argument it's like saying well you know we we don't have a we don't have a really good quarterback on our team but let's not you know let's not spend for a first round uh person let's not spend you know a uh, hundred million dollars on the quarterback let's get like this guy this guy is like worth $10 million and you still just have a quarterback that's not competitive. Right. So, I mean, I, I think that's how I'm looking at it, is this kind of thing where either if, there's no prize for second place in this, right. If you're dependent on, on foreign chips, you're dependent on foreign chips. And so that's why I think it's important to kind of go big or go home on this one. And so we went, but anyway, you know, more jobs for Ohio. So there, I mean, there you like I said, I'm happy about that. So absolutely. Absolutely. So there's actually even more legislative this week, Jay. You know, I can't I can't recall the last time we talked more about legislation. I kind of like it. Um, so uh, one other thing that passed this week, at least in the House and with bipartisan support, was something called the Respect for Marriage Act, which in which 47 Republicans joined every House Democrat in supporting. Now, the bill now heads for the Senate. It would repeal the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage as only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. And while it... And which would, has been struck down as unconstitutional. Yeah, we'll get anyway. to that in a minute, right? Um, now, the Respect for Marriage Act, it actually wouldn't require any state to allow same-sex marriage, but it would require that any state that doesn't issue marriage licenses for same-sex couples after, if if uh, Oberfell is overturned, uh, that would actually, the state would still have to recognize the validity of licenses issued by other states under the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution. And like I mentioned, this will only really become a truly live issue 
if the Supreme Court overturns uh, Oberfell versus Hodges, which is the 2015 ruling where in a five to four decision, the court found that the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment prohibit state prohibition of same-sex marriage. And the reason why we're talking about this at all and why Congress's act has a lot to do, I would say, with Justice Thomas's dissent in Dobbs last month, in which he argued that the court should reevaluate all of its substantive due process-based decision, and he specifically cited Obergefell as one of those decisions. So, Jay, what are your thoughts on this, both, I guess, how you feel about it as legislation as well as what you think about the likelihood of giving the vote in the House uh, of getting 10 Republican votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster, which it would need. So I I would say um, I'm never crazy about legislation that is, um, hey, we're just going to pass what is already recognized law. Um. And the idea that well we're gonna we're gonna pass uh, this this bill in case the recognized law is eventually overturned, um, I I think it's like trigger I, laws I, you know, in the I, states about abortion, right? Exactly. I mean, no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. No, I, no, I feel exactly the same way okay. about trigger laws and abortions uh, because um, it's and again this isn't anything constitutional. This is just sort of uh, prudential, right? Um, is I think uh, legislatures ought to spend time on the problems that are actually before them uh, and confront those problems when they happen. Uh, and, and at that point, you're you're looking at the real world effects and the real world costs and the real world problems. And, and I think the trigger laws are, are a good example is a lot of these were passed when people thought, well, you know, all right, whatever. It's just a, a virtue signaling vote one way or the other. Because nothing's ever really going to happen. So we don't have to examine how does this, what's the interplay with, with other laws that we have? How does this affect pharmacists? How does this affect doctors? How, you know, all, all those sort of things that are now coming up, um, which if this had been an actual live issue, uh, would have would have been addressed and people would have been able to talk about it. So I'm, that's, I'm, I'm not crazy about this, like, what if legislating, right? Um, and, and, and the same goes... No. Yeah, for this. So I I have to say, I think that that is an entirely reasonable point to make. And uh, I don't know that I entirely agree, but I think it's certainly, like I said, a reasonable argument. I think where it gets a little bit unreasonable is as a number of Senate Republicans is sort of characterized. For instance, uh, John Cornyn said, uh, you know, this uh, Supreme Court has held that the Constitution protects same-sex marriage. He's right about that, of course. I cited Obergefell. But then he, he goes on to say, it's under no threat of being reversed or overruled, uh, which, of course, I that to me is when you kind of take it into that uh, that further step where that's just simply not the case, because I mentioned this was a five to four decision. And it seems to me entirely plausible that a court that's replaced Ginsburg and Kennedy with Kavanaugh and Barrett would rule differently. And in fact, I feel fairly certain if this case became if, if this issue came before the court today, the court would absolutely rule differently and be happy to overturn this decision and say, well, this there's nothing in the Constitution that guarantees a right to same sex marriage. And therefore, this is a, this is a public policy issue. The state should deal with that's what Justice Chief Justice Roberts argued in his dissent. And I think that would actually be the majority opinion if uh, if this case were were heard yeah, under the current court. I'm wondering what you think about that. You know, well, I disagree with that. I mean, I think Alito went out of his way. 
to to sort of uh, push back on the on uh, the Clarence Thomas, um, you know, we're going to wipe out all substantive due process cases uh, and say that no, this is this is specific, and he had. Um, but but Alito uh, signed on to that uh, dissent that Chief Justice Roberts wrote just uh, what seven years yeah. ago, and so I can't imagine yeah. that he would say, "Oh no, I was wrong in 2015." Um, no, no, so, he can say, I, "I think he can say I was still right in 20, uh, 2015. But uh, there's a difference when we look at the um, uh, issue of um, race judicata, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, the um, the the issue of uh, uh, yeah, the, the presidential weight. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, the idea that the idea that this court would give uh, would give uh, to, uh, a damn about the presidential weight of uh, a president from 2015 that the majority of them yeah. or that four of them disagreed with at the time the ruling and the majority disagree with now. I find that absolutely ludicrous. I, that that that's no. I, I, <laughs> I would say, listen. There's if you look at the the test for overturning precedent. Uh, there's a much, much stronger case to be made um, for overturning uh, Roe than for overturning Obergefell. Well, I right? think in terms of in, in terms of uh, uh, reliance interest, uh, in terms of workability. Uh, and the, so you can say what I'm saying is, is you can have a decision that you can say, look, that was wrong. Uh, but given where we are, uh, we don't feel that the the step of overturning a settled precedent uh, is necessary because the decision is workable. People have relied on it. Uh, it's it's you know doesn't doesn't look as so I, I I disagree with you that that Obergefell would be in danger of being overturned. Um, no danger. And I guess perfectly. I guess, I guess my I guess my I guess my my again response would be uh, well if it is then then we'll deal with it then. Uh, I think there's I think there's uh, the full faith and credit argument. Is actually something I've always actually liked, right? Um, no, that I mean, the court's held for a long time that that doesn't apply to significant policy issues, and this would be, I think, one of those one of those things. If there's not kind of legislation, kind of, so I mean, it's not like a yeah, and that's, honoring that's kind of like what what DOMA did in the first place. Yeah, so. yeah. So, well, I um, well, what do I you? Mean, th- I, let, me, let me let me put it this way: what what state? Uh, do you think is on the verge of of uh, passing legislation um, uh, repealing same sex marriage or, or creating a prohibition on same sex marriage? That's a that's a great that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I can't say for sure, but it would not it would not be it would not be weird to me at all or surprising to me at all if uh, Alabama, no, no, Mississippi. Somebody, some, some kook is going to offer, offer a bill somewhere, right? I mean, I, I guarantee you that, right? There would be a bill offered, but you don't think what are pass. the actual, yeah. Hmm. Well, I, 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 I wonder about that. I, I am a little more, I, I have a little more, it's easier for me to believe, sorry, that there are plenty of states or a number of states in the Deep South in which that would be very politically popular and would actually, there would be no problem in that passing, I don't think. And you disagree with me on I'm, that. But I think I, we'll I, see. I, 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 I expect um, this to happen in the next couple of years. Uh, my prediction, this is, uh, my prediction will be that this will this will happen within the next few years and there will the case will come up to the Supreme Court and within the next two or th- within the next two or three years, say, I fully expect uh, Obergefell to be overturned. 
All right. I, I, I will take that bet. Okay. Uh, I, I disagree. I don't see um, uh, Obergefell having the same sort of legs as the the uh, uh, pro-life movement okay. does. Well, we, we, we'll, we'll see. Right. I, I think th- it's, it's a much um, there, there's and this is something that, that uh, pundits have, have pointed out with. Uh, you know, when there was the thing of, well, what about loving? What about uh, these these other? What about um, Griswold? What about all that? There's never been a, you know, mass demonstrations, marches uh, uh, against contraception uh, or against interracial marriage. But there's plenty of um, opposition to same sex marriage in certain parts of the country still. Yeah, I but mean, is it is it organized? Is it a movement? Is it something that people are really going to get behind? It's one thing to say. Uh, we believe abortion is murder. We believe we need to save the lives of innocent children um, as an organizing principle to get people to spend money, to get people to show up, to get people to vote. Quite another to say, uh, listen, we want to pass legislation to remove uh, state recognition of same-sex marriages for people who are living together and having sex together anyway. but we won't have them. Uh, have, they can't have an official state marriage license. That's just. A, I think that just doesn't motivate. I mean, there there may be people who say, "Yeah, look, I I'm against it. I'm opposed to it." Uh, yeah, I I uh, see but, your point, uh, and I think I think you're right. I don't disagree in general that that certainly the abortion issue is going to. There's much more strong, unified, uh, vehement opposition than there would be for this. But I guess where we disagree is I think there is enough opposition and enough political opportunists to care to cash in on that opposition where I would expect that at least in one state in the next few years, we're going to see a law and you don't think it quite gets to that point. That's all. No. All right. I I would, I I wouldn't surprise me to see bills introduced. Certainly. Um, Yeah. But I, but I don't think uh, they go anywhere and I, I don't see any, um, oh my gosh! Could you could you imagine all the? I mean, the, the grief that I mean, look at what Florida's gone through. Um, the the grief that uh, uh, you'd get, and sure. everybody, all the other states would be boycotting you, and uh, you know, it would be a whole big. Um, That's a good point. I, and yeah, I, nobody nobody wants that. Nobody wants that headache. Well, I, I, I hope you're right about that, and we, we shall see. So with any luck, you will be right, and we'll, we'll come back in you know, two or three years, and you'll say, Mike, yeah. whatever happened to that? And I'll say, yeah, and then And then even assuming you get to the courts and you're going to make that, um, uh, that pitch, uh, you know, assuming Clarence Thomas is still on the court, um, that you'll get uh, Alito, Roberts, uh, all, the, all these yeah, others. I, I'm much more I, confident I don't know, that I, I, don't, I don't know that you do, even at all that right. point. Maybe we'll find out in a few years, but, but again, I hope, I hope we don't. So, you know, I want to move on to something a little bit different, Jay. Uh, We've been, we've been doing this show for more than seven years and, you know, I don't think there are too many political topics we haven't even mentioned, but I am positive uh, that this is the first time that we'll be discussing monkeypox uh, on the podcast. So this is the first, yeah. um, which isn't surprising, right? It's been around for a long time, but uh, it's been very rare until recently. It's only a week ago, the World Health Organization designated monkeypox a global health emergency, announcing that it now constitutes what they call a public health emergency of international concern, which is its highest alert level. 
And according to the latest CDC statistics, there are over 20,000 total worldwide confirmed cases of monkeypox. And in the U.S., there are actually over 5,000 cases as of today. I'm sure if listeners are hearing this a few days later, it's going to be more because it's spreading quickly. And the U.S. has the highest count of any country in the world. Now, monkeypox is rarely deadly, though there have been some fatalities but it can cause significant illness. And while the vast majority of cases have so far been transmissions between men having sex with other men, it can and has been spread through means other than male-to-male sexual contact. And unlike COVID, there's an effective vaccine, and there's good reason to believe that if we had had an appropriate, timely, coordinated global response, well, the current outbreak could have been stopped. But now it's looking a little bit less like that, um, because I would argue, and a lot of folks would argue that the, the the response has, in some ways, kind of mirrored what we saw to a lesser degree with COVID, where uh, uh, government agencies were slow off the mark, a lack of availability of quick testing, delays in testing and contact tracing, and all that. Um, now, currently, uh, HHS has not declared this uh, an emergency, but uh, Se- Secretary Becerra has said that we will weigh any decision based on the response. So uh, right now, the Biden administration has sort of privately estimated to Congress that it might need as much as $7 billion to mount that adequate response. And this, of course, is at a time when Congress has still even failed to act on the uh, administration's request for COVID, uh, which $22.5 billion and, and that BA5 outbreak. But, Jay, what's your take in general on sort of the whole monkeypox thing and the response? There were some people who suggested that, well, the response has been slower than it could have been because this has been, at least to some people, stigmatized as something that only happens to gay men who are sexually active. And that's a group that, at least in some sectors, is still unfortunately stigmatized. What What do you make of all this? Um, I think I think it's a lot of nonsense. And I think it's a lot of um, <laughs> public health agencies have sort of asserted themselves uh, into the forefront of our lives. Uh, they they do not want to go away. Uh, as you mentioned, something 5,000 infections uh, in the United States. Um, compare that with a, a million people who have died of COVID and how many infections, I mean, hundreds of millions. Um, so, uh, so, so when when does when does the number of infections become not trivial, especially when you're talking about something where I mean, when I pull up the stats just a few days ago, and these again, these numbers are likely to be low because these are just confirmed cases. Sure. It was uh, it was around four thousand. So I mean, that's how right. Okay. That's the logic of these things is that if you if you try if you are get on them early. And due to things like testing and, and quick turnaround time and contact tracing and that sort of thing and vaccinations, you can prevent tens or hundreds of thousands of severe illnesses, uh, in this case, at least. And so it sure seems to me like the government's dropped the ball on this again to a certain extent. Oh, I, I suppose. Um, again, if if you look at the government as this is your ultimate guarantor of, of health, and, and I don't. Well, public health. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean how else? All- I mean, how else is someone goes into a doctor says, I don't know, I've got this weird rash and I'm not feeling good. And the doctor says, well, it 
Could be monkeypox, and we'll find out in a week because that's how long it takes for the test uh, because we don't have sufficient access to that. I mean, that yeah. that sounds like but a government in, but failure in the meantime, to me. But in the meantime, avoid having sex with, with other men or anybody else. Avoid close contact with people. Sure, and that's that's a reasonable that would, precaution see, that was, to make. That, Absolutely. That, that don't cost nothing, right? Nope, that's true. Say, Listen, it, it looks like this could be monkeypox. Uh, here's what you need to do. Um, yeah, I, I, I think this is a... Uh, uh, and and look, I no one is saying, first of all, monkeypox is far less infectious than any version of COVID, right? The the big thing with COVID was it, it was, is uh, so infectious. It spreads so easily and so quickly. Um, that's not the case with, with monkeypox. So it's, it's very unlikely that this would ever become that sort of quick spreading uh, a virus. It just doesn't, it just doesn't operate that way. Um, so look, let's let's take all due precautions that we would, and if if you suspect you may have monkeypox, avoid close contact with people. See your doctor. Um, but I I'm always a little hesitant to say what we need is more emergency declarations and uh, a whole a whole bunch more money. Um, when again, we still haven't even come close to spending the COVID money. Um, but was, you can't spend the COVID money on, on monkeypox. And I know that there sure are people there are people in uh, major U.S. cities who are lined up or practically would be lined up to get vaccines if they were readily available. And while there are you know certain. Uh, oh, you're, you're saying you're saying it's just because the ramp up time. Yeah, exactly. You're not saying you, you're, you're, there's no there's no legal. Uh, uh, prohibition from spending a lot of this this COVID money that's floating around on monkeypox. It's just a matter of well, I, we I think there may be. Uh, it we, we can't get the the things up and running quick enough, and and I get that. Um, but you know what what I'm saying is, if you want to spend new money to get it up and running quick enough, uh, or you can spend the old money. I'm saying spend the old money first. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know that that's correct. Actually, that you can just take COVID money and spend it on something else because, well, uh, it's just another infectious disease. I, I don't think it oh works. Oh my gosh, no. Way. I mean, uh, we've got. Um, you should see the the ARPA spending that's that's going on here. I mean, we uh, it's it's uh, ARPA dollars. It's extremely 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 flexible. Uh, in which you can spend it on. And there are all sorts of organizations that are getting tons and tons of money uh, for things that have nothing to do with COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're still trying to figure out uh, what to do with the rest of the money. Um, and then scratching our head, it says why inflation is at 9.1. But what I'm, what I'm saying is I, I don't think we need to spend more money uh, on this um, or declare more emergencies uh, or have these public health agencies inject themselves further into uh, people's gotcha. daily lives, especially especially in this case where, uh, look, unless you are in that certain segment of the population that is likely to get monkeypox, um, and, and you can say, well, this is a stigma. Well, yes and no. Well, let it's me just... Matter. If, you have a small, if you have a small slice of the population uh, that's likely to get a, a, you know, moderately infectious disease, uh, which is which is non-lethal, um, mostly. Yeah, but yeah. But, but let yeah. me I also mean, say that's, that's... that it's it's while most of the con most of the spread has been right now through male to male sexual contact. I mean, the CDC makes it clear that you actually can get it from touching from skin to skin contact that's not sexual and also it la it can last for quite a while on surfaces that have been used by somebody with monkeypox so the problem is is as this becomes more as it spreads more rapidly 
then you have more of these instances of spread that's not through male-to-male sexual contact. And that's, again, how the logic of this works, which is why with these sort of public health issues, why it's so important to jump on them hard early. And yeah, does that mean there's going to be a little bit of, a little bit of pork and, and, and a little bit of wastage? Absolutely. But I think overall, the, the, the benefit is just, just enormous. And I, I feel like we really fumbled this again. Okay. All right. So uh, I guess, I, I guess, I guess my, my, my issue is, okay, you fumbled it. Um, what, what is it that, that we, we need to do now that, that you need an emergency declaration for, or you need more money for? Well, I mean, emergency declaration. Right? Isn't this, yeah. I mean, isn't this, it's sort of, it's sort of like, um, what, what sort of public health operation are we, uh, running when, uh, you know, anytime something comes up, uh, well, now we've got to, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's not, obviously we don't, we don't declare emergencies for just any old thing. And it wouldn't just be like a, the U.S. acting in some weird kind of unilateral way because the WHO has declared it. But in the future, you know, but my, the concern is in the future we will. Well, I mean. The bar for emergency, the bar for emergencies gets progressively lower each time. Well, I get that, but that sort of slippery slope argument doesn't really help, you know, people in uh, potentially the highest at-risk communities right now who are saying, hey, uh, what, 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 what's being done to, to help protect us? And so I think a lot of folks who might hear your argument here would say that it seems like it's sort of a, uh, they might actually characterize it as sort of a uncaring or heartless argument to, to people in these at-risk communities. And just, I, I'm not saying that that's how you feel about it, but I wanted to point that out and kind of get your get your thoughts on that your your response to that because almost certainly there'll be some people who will who will view it that way well I, I guess what what is it that that uh you're looking for in terms of of caring or or heartfulness i mean i um I, if if you're if you are in um a a demographic that is more likely to be exposed to a disease uh take the appropriate precautions Right. I, I think that goes for for anybody, whether it's look, the flu's going around uh, in, in your town, um, whether it's covid, whether it's monkeypox. Uh, and it's especially easier when when it is something like monkeypox that that is hitting harder in a specific demographic and say, look, if I'm in that demographic, uh, I'm going to choose to be more careful for the you know foreseeable future until this blows over. Uh, I don't think that's heartless or uncaring. I think that's just kind of common sense, right? But, but I think I also mean, if, some if, people. Like I said, yeah. if, if everybody, if you know, look, if you go, if everybody at work has the flu, uh, and and you're like, you know, I can work from home today. Uh, yeah, it make it makes sense to do it. Um, but I think some people might say government intervention, but some people might say, OK, fine, as far as it goes. But if if there's a vaccine for it and it's being uh, it's not coming out as quick as I want, I mean, as quickly as it could be, then just sure. saying, well, you know, just don't have sex. Uh, avoid intimate contact with uh, folks that folks that you love or care about or what have you. Uh, and until, well, at some point we get a vaccine out there to you. I mean, some people would say, well, that's not a that's not a very efficient efficient, effective, or uh, humane government response. Just, ah, I just don't have sex. Well, well there's some, uh, you're, you're getting into some, there's some sort of, like, uh, you know, assumptions that you start getting into, and we're talking about people in committed relationships. Um, 
right? But uh, and, and I don't think you want to go there, and I, I know I don't want to go there. No, I don't think so. Um, yeah. But but you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, um, if uh, no, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, if you're if you're what uh, there are. If if you are have, have a a partner who you don't believe has been exposed to monkeypox, um, uh, maybe they got it from work, uh, right? But but look, this is this is again just a common sense sort of thing, and that's not to say, um, oh, therefore we're not going to pursue vaccines. Uh, and again, it's not like we have to create a vaccine. It's nope, out there. We got them. It's just yep. a matter of, of producing it, and it's just then a matter of well paying somebody the money to produce it. Well, like I said, there's lots of money laying around uh, from ARPA, from other um, uh, COVID relief funds, and and you know let's let's use that money first uh, before we start uh, declaring emergencies uh, and spending more money. Okay, and on that issue again, I think well, I know you and I have a uh, difference of opinion as to whether or not that could actually be done, and that's another one of those things that I will. Yeah. I have just made a note. I will check in on that, and we can kind of report. Now, back. now I think there's there's some good questions because of the way ARPA funds, and and I'm I'm using ARPA broadly, right? Yeah, um, have been mostly distributed to state, uh, county, local local governments. Um, whether those those local governments would have the, the ability to uh say you know contract with a, a vaccine supplier to, to get more um i think a you know county health department could, could certainly say okay we're going to buy this much vaccine um but there's a the question of is it if it's manufactured is it available um so i know I, I i think there i understand that and I, and I would say that's probably not a legal barrier it's it's probably just more a a um um you know, administrative, logistical, administrative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, that, you know, because this hasn't been designated this way and because all these people don't have the, the funds to. Um, but uh, uh, I guess I guess my and my concern is uh, there are a lot of people out there who are now distrustful of uh, public health agencies uh, for a lot of reasons, and a lot of them for good reasons. and. The sense that um, as the the COVID pandemic winds down, um, winds down. Well, okay, <laughs> wishful well, thinking no, there, I, mean, I think, but okay. Well, the the idea that um, as we decide we're done with it, whether or not it's done with us, right. maybe. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's well. Um, well, yeah. and uh, let's government agencies like this. Um, there is there is always the uh, uh, need, want, desire to be. Um, relevant out there, be in front uh, to do something uh, and to extend your your organization's reach. Sure. Um, and and I would argue think, it's think, warranted. You know, when anyone says, case. you know, oh, come on now, we're, you know, um, there, there are people who are would be concerned to say this is this would just be an excuse for the government to uh, start imposing more restrictions on people and businesses and start spending more money. Yeah. And I get that argument, but I, I think it's just it. it just flails wildly uh, given given the reality of the situation. So we can have a fundamental, I think, disagreement on that one. Um, you know, I, we actually, we've run a little bit 
long today, and that's okay. But one other thing, Jay, before we go, I just wanted to remind everyone uh, that hasn't actually listened to When the People Decide, the podcast, uh, definitely check it out. Uh, Jay, this week, uh, one episode I listened to, I checked out, uh, I'm betting it's about uh, initiatives in California. You probably have some pretty strong uh, viewpoints on initiatives in (laughs) California. Exactly. So there's an episode, a great episode. They, They look at one of the most, I guess I'd call it the most infamous California initiatives there three strikes law, which was actually enacted, and then it was reformed through another citizen initiative process. It gets very involved. California loves their initiatives. Anyway, however you feel about initiatives, if you're kind of more of a fan of them like I am, or like Jay, you're like, oh my God, letting people decide. That sounds horrible. Uh, It's a really great episode, and you can check it out, find when the people decide really pretty much. Yeah, yeah, taking an incredibly blunt instrument. do what yep. to be a surgical procedure. Yeah, but. and, and uh, I, like I said, I'm much more of a fan. But anyway, it's it's a it's a really fascinating story, and you check it out when the people decide. It's uh, where you can find it, you know wherever you get the politics, guys. I would think so. Anyway, um, and also before we go, I want to thank some new supporters. We have Carl, Jason, and Wiley, who actually increased our level of support. Thank you so much. We really, really do appreciate that. And remember, if you're not already a supporter, we hope you'll consider becoming one and because hey without you guys we couldn't keep the podcast going and when you become a supporter you get all kinds of good stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out as well as our supporter exclusive midweek show where we and we try to break away we're going to start trying to break away from those constraints of the news cycle talk about bigger broader wax philosophic even at times i don't know but uh, it should be a lot of fun also supporters can join our very active politics guys discord group there's even politics guys gear and other benefits at different levels of support to check it all out go to patreon.com slash politics guys and if you'd like to support us on venmo you can do that we're at politics guys you can also support us through paypal and all of our support links are in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support if you'd like to get the midweek show but you're not in a position to financially support the podcast right now totally not a problem send me an email mike at politicsguys.com and i will get you all set up and whether you're a supporter or not we would really appreciate it if you could subscribe rate and review us on whatever podcast app you use and share episodes on social media. And if you want to get in touch with us for whatever reason, you can do that on our Facebook or Twitter, Discord. There's also our email address, mailapoliticsguys.com, and uh, all that, again, is in the show notes. A special thanks, as always, to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new show for you next week. We hope you'll join us.